From Hong Kong, this is Maya Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based on the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today, we have two guests. First of all, Paul Orlando, professor at USC and the incubator director of their internal incubator and accelerator program. Before that, he ran several accelerators and bootcamps. To date, has guided hundreds of companies. Recently, he wrote his second book, Growth Units, on customer acquisition cost and lifetime value. He writes regularly about unintended consequences of new tech, policy, and business growth. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Jeffrey. Great to be here. And Paul, why don't you introduce the third guest? Oh, yes. You might hear, uh, hear a little bit from her throughout our session today, but I have my daughter, Tessa, here with me. You know, in the past, we used to do bring your kids to work day, and that's every day these days. So we have, oh, and I have a new entrance as well. My wife, Susan, who also. <laughs> oh, and another daughter coming in. This is just, you know, this wasn't even planned. It's getting the whole family. It wasn't even planned. <laughs> this is what happens. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? Elliot here, Charlotte. Okay, we've got the whole family here. This is the kind of quality that you get in this mm -hmm. era we couldn't have done this in the normal times. no come on correct and it's much more accepted than when the bbc interviewer did that uh, recording right when his no. uh, kid came in exactly okay so paul now that the family is out and in bath time can you tell quickly how did you end up in startups sure my path was pretty jagged and haphazard um, first part of my career was largely, I'll call it corporate. So I worked at big companies, always in tech in one way or another. So um, actually, the first time I worked in Hong Kong was in telecom. And this is during the dot-com bubble or the telecom bubble of the late 90s, and early 2000s. Did a lot of work um, in China at the time, um, you know, around Asia, around Europe. And... Actually, from there, I kind of transitioned into more of a management consulting role. So again, like instead of doing, you know, like you're building a product, which I was um, you know, in telecom before, um, helping other companies, you know, optimize or like, you know, improve their products. But then the inflection point for me was another financial crisis. So it was a 2008 or 2009, you know, that, that, you know, that crisis lasted a little while. And um, a number of things happened you know, for me. So I was working in New York at the time and I was at a company that seemed to be doing pretty well. And then all of a sudden it was not doing very well. So I was actually laid off. And the, the first thing that I did, my go-to was, um, you know, I had this experience of having built up some good client relationships. So I was at a management consulting firm, like a mid-sized firm that um, was hit pretty hard. And I was actually able to maintain a lot of those relationships. So I kind of kept consulting to some of the companies that I had gotten to know. So I was relatively unaffected um, when I was laid off, but it was clear that that wasn't going to last forever. And I had a, a group of a few friends who, you know, we'd, we'd get together every week or so, and it would be about drinking and ideas. Uh, and so like event, eventually the ideas got to be you know, at least half of the time, you know, instead of the drinking. 
being you know the majority of the time. And we were talking about potential businesses that we would want to work on together and did that for about a year. Just this, you know, getting together about once a week, talking, you know, ideas and like, okay, everybody goes back and then, you know, does some work or some research or like, you know, try some things and comes back again the next week. And eventually we settled in on an idea that we all felt like we wanted to to go for and try to build. And it was, um, you know, this was 2009. So you have to kind of put this in the context, but, but it was to build a way for people who were strangers to have um, a voice conversation with another person about a certain topic. So very much mass market consumer approach in the very beginning, um, started working on it and um, actually built a, you know, I won't call it a, an MVP because we really didn't have a hypothesis that we were trying to test and we didn't uh, really uh, know enough at that time to, to do that. But uh, we had something that was pretty minimal in what it did and looked pretty bad. Um, and, you know, um, in, in not too much time, I'll say like maybe a couple months, you know, we did some tests, you know, maybe even a little less, um, you know, and then we were starting to open that up. But um, to your question, because I'm giving you a, a bit of extra background here, what got me into startups was a like a crisis of some type, like economic crisis. But since that point and call it maybe 2009 or so, um, I could tell you a bit more about the startup that I worked on and how things change after that. Um, you know, from that point, so that's, you know, say a midpoint in my work life. Um, from that point, I've either worked at a startup or run a startup accelerator program or like you know, worked with a lot of founders. So that was kind of my uh, inflection point. Okay. But you were at that point a consultant. So you were uh, doing some consultancy job. Did you at that point started to save and make some runway for yourself before you really started this and had no time to do consultant anymore? Or it just fluidly went into this and at one point you found out like, hey, I have no income anymore because I'm always working on my startup. How, how did that go? So what the way it went, um, the funny thing about moving from consulting or being a consultant to a large organization to doing it yourself is as long as you have a pipeline and you've got like you know, your closing deals, you can actually do much better than if you're working for a company where you're on like a fixed uh, salary. So um, I actually had you know some projects where I did you know where I made much more in a in a whatever in a few months than I would have made say in you know I don't know two three four times that you know amount of time. So it gave me a little bit of a buffer. Um, but really, what I saw happening was I wasn't going to be able to maintain um, new projects coming in. You know, I, I kind of I, I kind of had this this, um, you know, this tale of uh, client relationships. And as people who I knew were getting laid off themselves, those were starting to dry up. And it seemed clear that, you know, I wasn't going to have the time to invest in business development and kind of build this up as a, an individual practice. Um, you know, much of, I'll say much of the consulting experience is, uh, at least for me personally, is, you know, the delivery of the work is, um, more straightforward than selling the project, you know? So, so that, you know, I, I, I saw, okay, this is, 
this is going to dry up at some point, or I'm not going to be able to like, you know, keep these bigger projects going. So it was a little more natural. Um, and yes, like this, this new startup that, you know, a handful of friends of mine and I were, were working on. Um, the other thing that happened, of course, was, you know, if it's me and three other people and they see, wait, you, you get to go and, and do something else on the side. Like we, we're all in, you know, so come on, <laughs> that's not right. So eventually I had to like make that adjustment just for the purposes of like being fair. Um, but, uh, but we had uh, a few other, you know, interesting things happen, of course, in the team. So um, the first thing was um, one of my roles at that time was that I would go out in public and then test this, you know, minimal, you know, version of the product that we had. It was, it was a company called, or a product called Chatfei, um, which turned out to be a very bad name because nobody knows how to spell it or, you know, like we used an accent in it. So the search results would come up differently if you wrote it with an accent or didn't write it with that. Uh, nobody could hear it in a noisy bar, right? So, um, but apart from that, one of my jobs was I'd go out and I'd test this, you know, you know, call it the MVP um, with somebody who's never heard of this before. And one of my go-to places, I'd say the place, that, the kind of place that I did 99% of these tests was a university campus. I was living in New York City at the time. There are lots of universities scattered around the city. It was an easy place to go. People maybe have a little more free time on their hands or you can kind of catch them as they're walking by. And my goal was every time I went out, I'm not going home until I get 10 people to sit down, try the thing. I would interview them afterwards, you know, collect some feedback. And the funny thing is, you know, I wasn't going to universities because I thought we would sell to universities or to university students or to researchers. I was going there because it seemed like an easy place to get people to stop and talk, you know, low stress. Um, and the funny thing, I'll tell you, like, like the other funny thing that I've seen in fact, also in Hong Kong at Accelerated HK, when we did this, we kind of did like a, a mini startup weekend. Um, that's pretty common. Like people, that's, that is a, or is or was, say, a go-to location for people who needed to do this kind of a test. Um, in other words, people go where it's easy to find people, not that those are the people that they want to find. So I'm collecting all this data that is flawed because I'm not really at the target, you know, talking to the target customer. I was also asking questions. I even like I saved, you know, in a Google doc, my, you know, my survey, it was a survey that I would, you know, go through with them and really not helpful questions such as, you know, do you like this? You know, would you pay for this? How much would you pay for this? Right? Um, and of course everybody says, Oh, Fantastic. Yeah, I'd, well, I'd, I would pay uh, 10, 20, $25 a month. You know, because um, nobody, nobody wants to be like that jerk who's going to say, oh, this is terrible. I don't want this. You're crazy. Or they're just really bad at putting themselves in that theoretical future state when they might have the ability to pay for something of this nature. Right? And beyond that, so I would go back with this data and I'd be, I, I would just, even then, I was a little skeptical. It's like, too many people are saying that they want to give us money. This, it, I, I didn't think that that was the way you know the world was. It, it hasn't been my experience so far. Um, but but even beyond that, 
you know, we cut ourselves off from learning in a different way in that we would take the site down on the days that I was not doing these tests. So even if somebody wanted to go back and try it the second time, you know, and it was obviously like we were gaming it, like you know, there was somebody behind the scenes doing the conversation, you know, like just for the purposes of the experience. By taking the site down, we lost the ability to just see like, does anybody try to go back? You know, that would be a good metric to see if they really are interested. Like, and uh, I think we would have found that no, nobody knew, nobody goes back. <laughs> yeah, it's um, customer discovery in the in that sense is indeed an expertise by itself. When you say uh, universities, I quite often uh, advise, depending of course on your customer segment, right? But to do your interviews at airports because that's a very mix of people mm-hmm. and. Uh, people have to wait anyway. They're mm. sitting around. Like maybe even book a cheap flight to somewhere, get arrive like five, six hours before the flight, just walk around, see where a gate, maybe some delay, and start talking to those people. If at that point, of course, especially if you have a mass market product, then uh, then that works. Or if you have a travel-related or a business-related product, then at that point, you have a big chance that uh, people uh, will be able to uh, to have some time to talk to you. But yeah, uh, indeed what you say, universities, because it's easy, coffee shops, that kind of thing. Uh, so you try to build something on flawed data. How, how did that turn out? What was the result of that? The interesting thing was... So this was a conversation product. And so if you imagine, again, this is 2009, you're having a spoken conversation. So imagine imagine like you're doing a phone call and the call might be through your browser, it might be through your phone, because that was also the option. And you have a prompt of what you're talking about, or you opt in, like, I want to talk about politics, I want to talk about, you know, travel, whatever it is. So um, there's some starting point to that conversation. So what we would find that was at least a signal that there is some interest was that people would talk a long time. And in those days, a long time was 10 minutes. And I don't know, when I figure you're talking to a stranger, you know, 10 minutes seems long to me. Um, a better metric, however, would have been, is this the kind of thing that you want to do, you know, if not daily, you know, at least weekly or like some regular basis, you know, what draws you back to this? And what we found when we did open the whole service up was people would go on, they would connect to somebody, they would have that first call and it would be positive. They would leave good feedback, but then they wouldn't go back again because this was not a daily habit. This was not the kind of thing they they needed to do all the time. And in comparison to just about every other service that's out there where it's asynchronous or it's single player, like... This is like, it's a commitment. You can't like be in a conversation halfway. You know, you, you have to engage back and forth. So what followed was, uh, so after, after we saw that data, uh, it was like immediately clear, like nobody's coming back. Immediately clear, something has to change. This can either, this either cannot be a mass market product or we have to make some other kind of uh, transition. So what happened was instead, of course, a few months of trying to make little tweaks, you know, okay, maybe we can increase the conversion rate and like, we'll get the top of the funnel to be wider. And that will, you know, even if only 5% of people come back the next month, at least the top of the funnel is bigger. And then, you know, that 5% will be a bigger number. Reminders by email didn't really work. The only thing that worked, uh, we, you know, they kind of had to twist our arm a bit, but at this time, we had a few businesses that were reaching out to us 
who wanted to use this platform for their own internal purposes. And it took a little development work, but we were able to pass that cost on to these business customers, right? like the, the ones who came, you know, became the first business customers for us. So the product transitioned into something very different, which was a, a way for patients with serious health issues to connect with one another. We would, you know, protect the patient privacy. Um, you know, after the call, we would, and so, so we were working with, instead of the individuals, we were working with like the doctors or the support group leaders. They maintained the customer relationship with the end user, which is great for us because we kind of plugged into these, you know, these doctors or support group leaders who we each had, you know, a pool of patients that they would push us out to. And, um, after the calls, we would then push out a survey or like, you know, some health information, you know, something like that. And what we found was, you know, the calls went from being 10 minutes long to 45 minutes long. Retention was no longer a problem because people were doing this for like a health need, a recovery need or in a serious situation. It's not just, you know, joking around. This is like, I'm isolated at home. I'm lacking human contact. I want to talk to like literally have a talk with a person who has this same serious health issue as me. I have no way to do that today. Oh, this solves that problem. So that's, you know, we, we basically had the, it was almost like the market kind of pulled out that answer. Um, it was not the, the thing that we started with, certainly. Okay. And um, that's not, as far as I know, became the next billion dollar company, right? No, no, it didn't become the next billion dollar company. It did. I'll say uh, we basically covered all of our costs and broke even. So, you know, we had three co-founders. We had at, at largest, we had like eight people you know, who were working there. And of course, at the time, being that it was a tough market, 2009, 10, 11, we had um, we, we made a lot of uh, a lot of strides in being very efficient with, you know, or money. So, um, you know, even in some cases, finding really good computer science, like master's degree students who in exchange for course credit, you know, worked for us. But um, it was actually, yeah, well, I, I kind of call it, uh, we, we basically broke even on uh, that, that time because um, we had some money coming in um, and it was covering, you know, basically what we were, you know, sending out. At one point you found out that it wasn't bringing you what you wanted, right? It, yeah, there there were a few reasons. So just about everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong with you know, this startup those years ago. Um, the quick rundown I'll give you is so in the early, you know, the early times when we were still figuring, you know, it was still like the mass market, you know, concept. Um, there was a fourth co-founder who was with us for a little while and then left and had some say, you know, family issues, you know, he, he left uh, kind of suddenly and um, left as in was in, you know, gone, invisible, like wouldn't respond to messages, you know, and we kind of let it sit there for a little while because we thought, hey, we're all friends still. There's no problem. And of course, you know, because we were all friends, we had not gotten around to signing a co-founder agreement. You know, we had it. Oh, the co-founder. We, had, we talked about it. Of course, we talked. We just hadn't, you know, like, hey, like, we'll we'll sign it. We'll sign. Like, it just hadn't happened yet. Of course, you know, hadn't happened yet. Um, and then this guy leaves. Still not a problem. I bet you know you'll just you know we'll we'll, we'll straighten this out later on. I'm sure it's not a big deal. And um, 
we had uh, we had tracking code in the, the code base. So a little while after this, we were noticing all these like hits to our our system from like a different domain. And we discovered, you know, this, you know, ex co-founder basically set up a clone of what we were building and was going to start his own you know, business on the side. <clears throat> so you can imagine that was a big distraction for us. Couldn't get him to come around. Um, ended up through a, you know, a New York City program. We found like a pro bono lawyer to represent us um, and like and worked through this issue. But they, they eventually just said, yeah, you have a rogue founder, but you know, what are you going to do? You can't stop all your, you know, all your work just like waiting for this guy to, you know, sign or like, you know, we, we were offering like, let's buy you out. Like, you know, like, um, so it was a headache that distracted us for a while. Um, that's why all the startups I work with now, I say, okay, before we do anything, you need to have a co-founder agreement in place. I don't need to see it. You know, I don't care how you're splitting things up, responsibilities, you know, equity, not really. I mean, you decide how your responsibilities are going to be you know, fair or equity is going to be split in a fair way. I just don't want you to do that same mistake because that's an easy one. You know, you're all friends today. You know, the likelihood is that the stress of running this business is going to cause some breakdown, at least Supposedly, that happens about thirty percent of the time. Just take this risk off the table, you know. Just just take this away from something that you have to deal with. And um, it's funny. I find that people who go through this exercise. So first of all, it's awkward. Like nobody really wants to have this exercise of like, okay, now we have to like split equity. Here's a vesting schedule. You know, like uh, what are the roles and responsibilities? You know, but it it takes you know. Okay, is this like a hobby that we're doing just for kicks, or is this really something serious that we want to do? It also forces the you know the question or the conversation where, oh, that's what you thought? No, I I I thought that I was in charge, or I thought you know I thought I had sixty percent and you had forty percent. You you thought the reverse, you know. So it forces that you know that conversation. You know, better to have it early than to have it late, or to have it late in a chaotic situation. So yeah, so that. That's one thing that happened with us. One of the things that totally true, like the co-founder agreement, so important. And then that forces people to talk about it, right? And just to think what you said, oh, I thought I had 40%. No, 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 you have like 25. Oh, but like uh, we always said X, Y, Z. And even if it's just an email agreeing on those major points, one of the things that it's a little bit older, but it's still, I think, very helpful is the Founder's Dilemma book from Noam Wasserman that really talks about that and the dynamics of whatever types of founding team that you have. Is it a founding team where they're total strangers? He, talk, he also talks about a founding team where you are friends. It's very interesting to see that and yeah, being forced to do that because it makes things way more clear. And it also, some of the founders uh, at that point start realizing, oh shit, this is this is for real now. Like I, I really have to start doing something or now I really have to sign something, but actually my day job doesn't allow me to have something on the side. So I cannot sign this. I have to forgo this. And that really helps with 
what you said, discussions down the road. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm a believer in, you know, if there is a risk that's significant, and I'll call that founder breakup pretty significant, if there is a risk that's significant that you can just take off the table, you know, by having, and like you said, like this, you do not need to go, lawyer friends hate it when I say this, but like you, you really don't need like to hire a lawyer, you know, for this. There are open source documents that you can edit. You could, as you said, even just have an email where you kind of write this out. It's it's really to keep everybody, you know, to keep everybody's memory intact. Because once money is involved, people's memory starts to change, or time is involved, people's memory starts to change. So um, yeah, it keeps people, um, you know, on the same page and gives you something to refer to. A year later when, wow, everybody's stressed out or the business might not be going so well, or, or maybe it's going really well, but now there's, you know, who's, who's actually you know, going to, you know, going to get the payout. Um, so yeah, good for the team, good for the investor relationship that you might have in the future. Good for everybody. Yes, yes, correct. From that, was it after that venture, did you because at one point you came back to Hong Kong, right? Yeah. Was it directly after or did you still do something in between? So around um, so around 2011, after I had been through a lot of these ups and downs, and I had gotten to know a lot of people in New York's then emerging startup scene, I started running this founder roundtable in New York that became pretty popular. And you know when I, um, when I first put this together, I wanted to do it because I had made all these mistakes. I was seeing a lot of other friends and people that I were, you know, I was meeting also kind of like stumble uh, their path, you know, through the path. And um, I thought, okay, there is, you know, here's a curriculum, you know, for doing this. And I wanted to get people, you know, together and we kind of work through it. And the funny thing is when I first brought, you know, this first, you know, eight or 10 people together, what I discovered was actually the curriculum was very much secondary. The first thing people wanted to do is have a regular group that they met with, that they could just exchange these experiences, get feedback from somebody in a similar situation, or maybe somebody like a little ahead of them, you know, in experience. And um, people, like, it was, it was, you know, very interesting to me because I went from, um, I kind of had, I had to learn these, these, um, you know, uh, lessons the hard way to now having a little more perspective and being the organizer of a number of these groups. And then actually I, I started to charge for the groups you know, um, after I did it the first time. Um, but I wanted to make it a bigger part of what I did. And I was looking for, I was mentoring at Startup Accelerators in New York and I was trying to either join one at some point or I thought maybe I could start one. But even back then there were 10 accelerators in New York City. And I didn't think it made sense to try to start you know, another one. So I was looking for another market to go to. And I thought of Hong Kong because I had worked there earlier in my career. You know, I, I thought it was at least worth, worth checking out. Um, my network there was gone because I had left you know, about 10 years earlier. Um, so I cold emailed a number of people who were, in fact, like people who were judges in a startup weekend that had recently happened, a um, number of other people that I found. So that's how I met Steve Forte, who I know has been on your podcast and who I ended up working with you know, later. Um, a number of other people who I you know, got to be friends with you know, uh, when I was living in Hong Kong at that time. But I cold emailed a bunch of people, flew to Hong Kong. I set up like as many meetings as I could. Hong Kong is a great location for this type of thing because you meet one person, then they introduce you to two other people. They introduce you to each to two other people. By the end of the day, like you've met like 20 people. Uh, very easy, you know, very easy to do that. So I was actually able to do things at a speed at which 
I could not have done had I stayed in New York. And I spent, I don't know, two weeks or so in Hong Kong, just met as many people as I could, went back to New York. Um, I thought there was some promise you know, there of starting something. There seemed to be local demand. You know, I kept just asking, like, who should I meet? What's what's going well here? What What's missing? You know, like, um, went back to New York. There didn't seem to be a way to fund the thing, at least on a timeline that made sense for me. You know, if it if this like strung along, I was going to end up doing something else eventually. Um but the problem was I really wanted to do it. So the uh, the I, I kind of had to flip the model around. So the first iteration of this that I did was not a funded accelerator program. It was a thing that I called Startup Bootcamp, um, which uh, had a, a tuition fee to it. And I did this uh, with three cohorts over that year that I was there, but it was mostly like in the beginning. Um, but the, the funny thing for me was... Um, I don't know if I was lucky or I was just like, I was I, I was definitely in that market at the right time because out of that, I think I had 13 companies that went through it. I had certainly people from Hong Kong that went through that, but also people from the US. And then, you know, a team from Russia, you know, another team from elsewhere in Asia that was kind of like, you know, coming, you know, coming in and out of Hong Kong. And it was that experience of, okay, this is the right time in this place. This demand was pent up and I was able to like kind of bring people through this program. We did demo days, you know, back then. So I was able to show at the end of the program, look, like they're a lot better than they were when they started, you know, there's, there's progress. Um, and then partway through that experience, I think it was like at the, the second batch of that cohort that I did, that was the start of Accelerator HK. So yeah, so like it, the timing was good and it was a, a lot of fun seeing that startup ecosystem at what I'll say like the, the early days when like I certainly knew if not everybody by name, uh, you know, like half or two thirds of uh, the founders by name, you know, back then. Um, but a lot of fun, you know, uh, being like at the kind of like the, the earlier stage of a startup ecosystem and like just seeing like new people coming in, new people building things, like, you know, new things on the horizon that are going to be launched, um, you know, both in the sense of companies, um, you know, investors, you know, programs, um, even government involvement or, you know, university involvement. So um, I had a lot of fun with those two programs. Um, and then, of course, you've seen a lot. And uh, you said I did demo days. I know you as Mr. No Demo Day, right? Uh, one of your key things that you always talked about. What is it what you like and don't like about demo days? Yes. So what I, what I like about demo days is it does force urgency on the part of the the founders or the program. Okay, we're together for typically three months. This is it. This is the big event at the very end. And then you're, you're out, you're graduated, right? Um, so you put a lot of that effort towards, let's make sure the product is in the best you know place it can be. Here's the pitch that's as good as it can be. We're going to get as networked up to the investors as possible in that time. And we kind of like drive all this urgency to this one event. In the beginning, when demo days were relatively new or accelerator programs were relatively new and there weren't many of them and there weren't many demo days, this kind of made sense. Or it made sense in a location where you had some critical mass of investors, you know, who they would come together at this point. And it was it was often like the kind of situation, at least for like the bigger programs, you know, more, more notable programs, like you should expect in a good program that you come out of a demo day, you know, like or like most of the cohort comes out with commitments or a number of meetings set up that you are, you know, you're likely to kind of like close that, that round. So there are certainly good things to that. 
where it can fall short is where, I mean, there's so many of these demo days, even now. There's like, like you know, even I, I think they've declined a little bit, but there's so many of these events to the point where they're not really as special anymore. Also, if you're doing this in a location where you don't really have a critical mass of investors, the question becomes, well, you're going to spend a lot of time, founders, on preparing for this presentation. Is that the best use of your time? Yeah, or are you only presenting for other founders yeah. that just is interested in joining and see how other people right. are doing? So you really have to like weigh those those benefits and those costs. I get why programs do them, but this re- like a demo date really should be for the founders. You know, the main beneficiary should be the founders. If the main beneficiary is instead the program, then you know this is not. You know, it's like a PR campaign for the program. This is um, this is not great. Um, so actually, you know, with that in mind, obviously I did demo days in Hong Kong, right? Um, here at USC, I don't do demo days, and there, I mean, there are a number of other reasons. You know, the, the market or the, you know the situation had kind of changed. There were other ways to get to investors that were better. And also, um, I kind of moved away from the high-paced three-month calendar to, yeah, I do take people in three times a year. So it is almost a three-month kind of a cohort, but three months is a blink of an eye. Everybody's moving at a little bit of a different pace. I would rather, you know, instead of forcing people to a demo day calendar, I'd rather instead help make connections individually where it's appropriate. I have a number of companies in the portfolio that they are bootstrapping their, you know, their way for the foreseeable future and like happily doing that. So they're not really, you know, uh, even considering pitching to an investor at this time. So you really have to think, okay, what's right for your founders, what's right for the program, for the place that you're in. And obviously some things also change with more virtual events, but I, th- I think you have to do that rather than just say, well, we have to do demo days because that's what you do. Yeah. And beside of Mr. No Demo Day, and for me, you're also Mr. Second Order Effect, right? The unintended consequences. Uh, you've been writing uh, about that already for a very long time. Different topic. Can you tell a little bit more in how you came about that topic? Sure. So this is something I started doing, like, yeah, a little more than two years ago. I started doing this for fun, you know, in writing about, like you say, like second order effects. So we have this, especially in the startup world, right? We have this mentality of here's a problem. We have the solution to it. And it's like, we're, we're done. Like, you know, solved, you know, everything's good. Along the way, however, there are many examples of things going differently than we expect or not thinking about some other effect that our solution might have. So, um, yeah, so I, I write this uh, regular series called Unintended Consequences. If you just search Unintended Consequences blog, you, you should find it. Um, and I actually, the, funnily enough, I, the, I started to do this when I saw a friend's startup, actually a guy who I knew from Hong Kong, Jeff Smith, who later moved you know, back to New York, I was in touch with him. He had a startup that was a voice AI startup. And um, Google came out with a product called Google Duplex, which was very similar. They would you know, order something for you on the phone and like it would have a voice conversation you know, back and forth. Um, and I've, you know, over the years, I've been just, just been interested in voice as a uh, communication method as opposed to video or text. Um, so I ended up you know, writing about the unintended content 
consequences of a voice AI that can do a number of things that, you know, that humans you know, wouldn't be able to do. And in one day, you know, registered the domain name, you know, like kind of like, you know, went on this path and I discovered that the experience, you know, the background I had with startups or tech companies, it like intersected with this topic, even with very big companies that, you know, that we all know about where we might largely think of them as good. But there's also some value in understanding places where they cause some chaos. So, for example, Airbnb is an example of a company that scaled up at, call, after they, they got you know, the product right, uh, that scaled up very fast uh, and became international very fast. The normal story about like that type of a product is, well, this is amazing. Like you get all this extra inventory of you know, places to stay when you're traveling. If you are the, the homeowner or the, you know, the, the leaseholder, you could rent out your home and, you know, get this extra income on the side. And um, that was certainly the story that I, I mean, I, I certainly enjoyed staying in Airbnbs. So it was interesting to see, well, well what does the whole uh, ecosystem look like? Does anything actually end up worse because of Airbnb? And what you found or what you find is um, in markets where Airbnb is over just like, like a percent or so of the inventory that has a dramatic effect on increasing rents. So like um, in New York City, you know, there's a study done that was like attributing, I forget the percent, you know, of uh, rent increases that are due just to inventory that's been taken off the market because it's now an Airbnb property. Like San Francisco certainly dealt with that. Smaller locations that are tourist locations absolutely deal with that because if you are the person who has to, who like, who lives there 12 months of the year, now like, there may not be an actual place that you can live because it makes more sense for me to, you know, if I'm the owner, for me to lease it out for the busy season, you know, the, the tourist season. Um, so yeah, so like places like uh, like Venice, you know, that are heavily, you know, uh, dominated by you know tourists, they have this effect on like changing the overall environment. And you have to like just be. I, I say like I'm not saying don't do companies like this. I'm saying just be aware that there are other sides of that story and there's some other effect that you're likely to have. One of the topics that I've actually ended up um, maybe disagreeing with a number of people on is how would um, higher level autonomous vehicles actually have an impact on safety? So, you know, so like this is another story. There's obviously like quite a few companies that are working on AVs. None of them are what we would truly call like autonomous you know, today. Like you do still need a human to uh, control the car at, you know, at some point uh, or in some situations, they are being marketed as autonomous. But uh, as a friend of mine says, that's, uh, that's auto washing, you know, that's, uh, you're trying to like, um, you're presented as something that uh, it's not. Uh, and the, um, the issue that I have with this, you know, is I get the potential benefit to casualties or fatalities in accidents. And there are stats that you can look up around the world of you know, a billion vehicle miles traveled, like how many people are injured or or killed. What happens though, and you know, in general, the trend is you know, down over the decades. And the argument, of course, is humans should not be in charge of one ton, you know, you know, driving. People are, you know, they make mistakes, they drive drunk, they, uh, they drive when they're tired. Um, and therefore, I'm not sure what the stats are in Hong Kong or in China, but like in the U.S., it's about 3,000 fatalities a month, you know, recently for uh, you know, traffic accidents. So why would you want that? Drive it down to zero. 
or drive it down to like, you know, 30, you know, 1%. Um, and while I agree that you can do a lot more with safety, you know, you also have to accept that you're introducing this other systemic risk. So you take the control away from the humans and I'll say no humans are seeking to kill themselves when they go out, or if they are, you know, it's one and done. Like they, they've already taken themselves, you know, out of the gene pool. And so they're not impacting a thousand people. They might impact like a few other people that they hit. So you can't really like propagate, you, you can't like force people to be more risky or less safe. If you have, however, um, more of a, a system and it's like AVs that are, there's large scale fleets and they, they are like interacting with humans that are on the road or walking or driving. What happens when a bug propagates the system or what happens when like a, a hack takes a fleet down or impacts the city? So it's it's like, yes, you might drive down the, the daily fatality rate significantly, However, you might also see this spike in you know times when something goes wrong that was unexpected, and so I think it's you know a value to look at these potential risks. I, I, mean, I certainly find it interesting, but when I think of like unintended consequences, the like the tech founder's perspective is I'm going to ignore that stuff, or I'm not like, I'm not even going to want to be aware of that because that only prevents me from like building the business faster, you know, bigger. If I am like now, I'm like trying to account for something that you know wasn't. My intent, but it happens. I end up being a little more like uh, reluctant, or maybe a little risk averse, and then somebody else, you know, beats me. Um, so yeah, I, I found it to be like a, it, it's it's taught me a lot about uh, about systems and complexity. And when you talk about the unintended consequences, right? What is an advice that you at that point often give to founders about this topic that you say, like, uh, be aware of X, Y, Z, or something else? If you can start mapping out what the system looks like. So so just like years ago in Hong Kong, we were kind of mapping out who's in the ecosystem and you had the startup founders, you had investors, you had, you know, universities that are graduating talent, you had companies that are um, supplying talent or maybe being customers, uh, you had the government, you know, just like we were kind of like mapping that out and seeing like, okay, who should we collaborate with or like where are we missing you know um you know something you could try to do the same thing so um and that might mean that you literally just draw like a map of how things interact it'll never be perfect but it will start you on that path of thinking about it um you know who knows it actually might help you improve the way that you build something or like open your eyes to a potential new you know product that you could build you know like uh when i consider a lot of the companies that that became say household names, I mentioned Airbnb or like, you know, say Uber, you know, Lyft. A lot of these companies kind of started with, or they, they did not start with the premise that, well, that's just it. That's the way the world is. They actually said, well, you don't realize this customer, you know, but you don't have the best experience with transportation today. What are you talking about? I have taxis. I drive my own car. I walk. I take the metro. And like the world actually could be in a different, you know, like it could could operate differently. And like you know, presenting, you know, it's, it's almost like if you were to do that customer interview, you couldn't necessarily ask the question directly, like, do you have a problem with transportation? Because well, that's just the way it is. Like, no, I I drive or I rent a car or I I take a taxi. And then you change, you know, the option, and then you actually move the market. And that's why, like for for a number of those companies that did that, early investors were skeptical, right? A lot of people passed on Airbnb, like famously passed on Airbnb in the early days. Uber as well was judged as being okay. You're going to get 10% of the sta- of the uh, ta- uh, taxi market, which is growing at 2% of the year, so it's not interesting. And actually, behavior changes once 
you have these other options. So yeah, so you, you that's a mindset, a mindset, uh, you know, shifts. And I think you can help your way by like drawing this out. How do the things interact? Yeah, quite often I take the Airbnb example when people are dismissive of ideas. And then I always say like, yeah, like if you 15, 20 years ago, you would come to me and say like, hey, do you want to rent out your spare bedroom to a total stranger? Then everybody would have said, you're crazy, right? So I always, th- that is what I always use as, a, as an example for when people say like, oh, but that, that idea is crazy and even if i personally find it at that point crazy then still it doesn't mean that it is applicable to right now and maybe it sounds crazy right now but maybe in the future 10 15 years from now it is total normal just one thing about that so you know the interesting thing about airbnb if you look at their pitch day you know deck from y combinator they looked at the number of listings on craigslist so this is like, you know, a very, a very 90s style, you know, site, if you're not familiar. I'm not, I'm not sure that this was never really popular in Hong Kong, I think, you know, Craigslist. We have it here. And so it, it is here. Yes. Okay. So, so, you know, people would list their apartments, homes as a you know, thing to rent when, you know, before Airbnb was around and they, I mean, they still do this now, but if you can imagine, so they, they did the analysis and they saw there's like tens of thousands of people every week doing this. So if you can imagine Tens of thousands of people every week doing it in the worst possible way. Like a total stranger just shows up at your door. You have no idea who they are. They pay you in cash or you hope that they pay you. You hope that they don't trash your home, you know, when they leave uh, or steal something. Um, Airbnb comes along and they say, like, people are doing this in this awful you know, like situation. We just have to fix the trust issue, fix the payments issue. And now it will be mainstream. And um the other funny thing for them, like, so um, uh, Union Square Ventures, like, passed on them in, I don't know if this is 2008 or 2009. And, uh, you know, the explanation, of course, you know, was like, they just couldn't see it at the time. But you you can imagine, like, the who is the typical investor, right? The typical investor, anyway, is somebody who's a little wealthier, maybe a little older than the typical founder, right? So the typical investor is not the customer of Airbnb, at least in the early days. Now, sure. But like in the early days, like that's ridiculous. Like you said, like I'm going to stay in a stranger's home. That's nobody wants that. And so like, yeah, you can't put your, your head in somebody else's you know, uh, you know, situation. It's you're going to miss out on that opportunity. Um, and you also recently published your second book, Growth Units. Let's quickly top on that because that's podcast on its own, of course. And maybe we can do that in, in a later recording. But um, what made you to write this book? A couple of things. So I've been working with startups for years now on related issues of unit economics. So this, this book, Growth Units, it's about lifetime value and how to calculate that and a lot of examples. And it's about customer acquisition cost and how to calculate it and you know, lots of examples. So I had been working with lots of startups over the years. And then I had also created a course at USC that I was teaching about this, largely about this topic. So the funny thing was like, I, I had all of these notes and like, you know, examples you know, that I had been using in the past. And I finally just you know, organized them all and, and, and wrote this up. Um, and um, yeah, I've, I'm I'm happy, you know, happy with this. It's you know, when you 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 force yourself to actually go through that process of um, writing. At least for me, you know, I it makes me check 
that I am actually thinking, you know, clearly about something your listeners like, they can check it out uh, called Growth Units. I'll even, I'll, I'll give you like a, a discount, you know, code that you can use. Okay. I will put that one in the, in the show notes. Um, just to, to end up here, what is something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? <laughs> oh my. Oh, you're asking. Okay. Um, let me see. I'm not talking about that you didn't wear jeans for many years. <laughs> One of the many things I was known for in Hong Kong. Um, well, I'll give you an example because I'm thinking about Hong Kong now, uh, we, where we always had uh, a lot of fun. We had a lot of friends. Before I knew you in Hong Kong, so the first time I lived there, I uh, became friends with some guys who ran a restaurant in North Point. I'm not sure if I ever brought you there uh, or you've, you've maybe been there called uh, Dumbo in a North Point uh, Java Road cooked food market. And one late night that I was there with a bunch of people, I said, how about you hire me here and I'll be a waiter. And I was leaving Hong Kong to move back to the US. So this is like 2001. Um, and they hired me and I ended up working there the last week that I lived in Hong Kong. I had already left you know, my job. So, um, so I have been a waiter in a very busy Cantonese restaurant. And uh, that was an absolute blast. Just a, a you know, very, very funny uh, experience. That's, that sounds amazing indeed. Okay. Wow. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, <laughs> if there's one thing that you want people to take away from this talk, what is it? Uh, it's another great question. You know, a lot of what we talked about involves trying to look at, I'll say, like the overall system, you know, from when I was going back to Hong Kong, you know, the second time to, you know, to run the start boot camps and Accelerator HK, you know, to, um, to understanding the value of demo days or maybe you know, the lack of value to, uh, to talking about unintended consequences. So I think that the one thing that your listeners could do would be when they are kind of stuck with something or they want to think a little more long-term, try to um, to map out what the inputs and outputs of that system are. And it might help the way they think about it. You might do this in Excel. Like, you know, you might do this like just by drawing like a, a map, but um, you might find that it helps you think about some of the uh, the areas that you are ignoring. You might get a little, like, a, like another chance to look at the interactions of something, show that to somebody else, Ask them like, hey, does this make sense? Is this the way you would have drawn it? Like, you know, let you draw it too. Like, let me let me learn what you were thinking you know, as well. So that's been something that's helped me over time, and and I hope it helps your listeners as well. Okay, thank you very much for that. Okay. I want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. I had one last thing to say, actually. Okay, sure. You have the best podcast name that I've ever seen. So Mea Couple Podcast is great, but you're using Latin in Hong Kong. So, you know, did you ever think maybe you should rebrand yourself as like, you know, the Yamagaucho podcast or something of that you know nature? At one point, I live in Hong Kong now, but I'm intending to do this way longer than I would be living in Hong Kong. So it's 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 more the international way of doing it. And it's, of course, what I said, right? It's a spin-off of the Postmortem Conference, which is also not really Cantonese version of it. <laughs> but I quite often have to explain what Mea Culpa means, right? And Actually, quite recently, there is another podcast uh, from a political figure coming out called uh, Mea Culpa. But no, it is, for me, it was more of a, a wink and the, the setting. And then at that point, also have people learn about what Mea Culpa means. Mm -hmm. It's a great name. And it's been a, a real pleasure. You know, when I, I remember when I first you know met you in Hong Kong and, you know, 
and certainly in staying in touch with you these years. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jeffrey. No, thank you. And for the listeners, although the rating system of podcasts is hideous, if you like this Mayo Cooper series, you can rate this podcast with five stars and the motivation for the makers. Thanks, Mizuho Crowdbrain in Hong Kong for being the venue sponsor of this episode. And thank you for Copy Ventures for making this possible. And if you have any suggestions for guests, just let me know. Contact details are in the show notes. And this is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful. <laughs>